Our lesson is taken from the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1, following. Write this to the angel of the church in Ephesus. These words are spoken by the one who holds the seven stars safe in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know what you have done. I know how hard you have worked and what you have endured. I know that you will not tolerate wicked men and that you have put to the test self-styled apostles who are nothing of the sort and have found them to be liars. I know your powers of endurance, how you have suffered for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I hold this against you, that you do not love me as you did at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and live as you lived at first. Otherwise, if your heart remains unchanged, I shall come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Yet you have this to your credit, that you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I myself detest. Let every listener who hears what the Spirit says to the churches. To the victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which grows in the paradise of God. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this part of his word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the privilege of sharing our gifts. We therefore bring back to thee but thine own, and we ask thee that thou wilt superintend its use to the end that it may bring glory unto thy name and that it may bring help to many people. We pray that thou wilt now gather up the forces of our minds and enable us to think clearly regarding the scriptures and to take such inspiration and lessons from that word which we have this day as shall enable us to offer not only our gifts, but our lives in deeper devotion to thee. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to you this morning on the theme of the church that did its best. I read in the lesson a letter which was dictated by our Lord himself to his servant John on the island of Patmos and which was directed to the church at Ephesus. A few weeks ago, we looked more closely at the church at Ephesus. You can read a good bit about it in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and you can learn still more about Ephesus by reading the epistle to the Ephesians. One of the greatest of all of Paul's letters was written to the church there. But about 35 years after the epistle to the Ephesians was written, our Lord revealed in a vision to John on the island of Patmos, another message which should be directed to these Christians who were in Ephesus. The burden of that message was that they had started off wonderfully well, that they had shown great devotion to their Lord and to their Master, and that they were full of the works that would please him. But he said that he had one thing against them, and that thing was that they had lost their first love. And whenever a church loses its love for the Lord Jesus, then its glow begins to go away. You know, you really cannot witness effectively apart from that love of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you love him deeply, then that love shows to others. And when that love has grown dim, then our witness grows cold. 
Then he wrote another, he said, by the way, that unless they went back to their former works and returned once again to that love, he would take their lampstand away. And if the church is to make its light in truth known, it must have that love for Christ. I think that sometimes we have substituted other things which are good, but which are not of primary importance here. And then he writes a second letter, and that's the burden of our lesson today. It's, one, it's the briefest of all of the seven letters to the seven churches. And yet it is this letter that is full of the greatest praise for this church. Listen to it. Write this to the angel of the church in Smyrna. These words are spoken by the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. I know your tribulation and your poverty, though in fact you are rich. I know how you are slandered by those who call themselves Jews, but in fact are no Jews, but a synagogue of Satan. Have no fear of what you will suffer. I tell you now that the devil is going to cast some of your number into prison where your faith will be tested and your distress will last for ten days. Be faithful in the face of death and I will give you the crown of life let every listener hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The victorious cannot suffer the slightest hurt from the second death. Now, this is written to a church that outwardly would be looked upon as poor, but a church which the Lord, the King, and the head of the church calls rich. It's important to those of us who labor within the pale of the church to, think, uh, to, to, to know what the world thinks about the church, to know what members inside think about the church. It's for this reason that we have all these church magazines that are put out. But it's far more important to know what Jesus Christ thinks of the church. And we can learn something about that from these letters to these churches. We saw that a loveless church is a church that has lost its light. In this we will learn that a church that is true must expect to suffer. There is a church later that he writes to at Laodicea, a church that thinks of itself as rich and increased in this world's goods. And the Lord and King of the head of the church rebukes that church most stringently when he says that you are naked and wretched and miserable and poor and blind and I would spew you out of my mouth. You know, I was trying to think about a minister, myself as a minister, and what I would do if I had a call to these two churches. Let's just suppose the church in Laodicea called me and here came a nominating committee and they said, oh, listen, in our place in Laodicea, we have all of the leading people in the community. Why, on Sunday morning, we have Millionaire's Row. Uh, we have uh, great influence. The publisher of the newspaper is there. Uh, the man who is president of the local college is there. Uh, we have a senator who comes sometimes. We have great influence. You would really love our church, and we have more activities and more money. We are rich. And then suppose a nominating committee came from Smyrna. And this is a nominating committee that has nothing to say but that they have gone through terrible suffering. 
and pain and that it is difficult to witness for Jesus in that place, which one would I feel that I should respond to? I know how ministers think and how they brag on their churches, but I know how Christ thinks and how Christ brags on a church too. Now here is a church, this church in Smyrna. Smyrna is still in existence. This is a very ancient city. And it's still a very important city. It's named Izmir. It's in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And Smyrna was not far from the city of Ephesus, to which this first letter was written. Smyrna was a place that because of its great mercantile interest, a great number of Jews had gathered in this city. And it is interesting that in the first Christian centuries, the Jews persecuted the Christian church very severely. Of course, the Lord Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah. And when he was rejected, although he was accepted by many Jews, many rejected him. And so in Rome and in Smyrna and in many other places, they made it very tough for Christians, sometimes even joining in with the pagans. And so in this church in Smyrna, the, the Lord sends this message. He says, first of all, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation is an interesting word. It means something that is crushed and pressed. It's like a, a grape press where the grapes are pressed down until the grape juice comes out of them. It's like the stones where wheat is placed and the stones grind it to powder. This is the force of this word tribulation. And he knows their tribulation. He knows their trouble. Now he says their trouble comes from two sources. He says, first of all, their poverty and their slander. Now why would they have trouble? Well, in the city of Smyrna, there was a goddess erected to the city of Rome long before the Christian gospel ever came there. And in A.D. 25, Smyrna, because of its opulence, competed for the erection of a statue to the emperor, Tri a temple to the emperor Tri Tiberius, and it won that distinction. And so, in the city of Smyrna was the temple of Tiberius. And then finally, the Roman government began to degenerate to the point that the emperor was worshipped as God. This has happened today in China, where the most populous country on the face of the planet Earth, with its teeming hundreds of millions of people, have young people shouting the quotations of Chairman Mao, and have people who worship him, that it is even Chairman Mao's thoughts which created the universe, and he is deified and worshipped as God. And there are Christians in China, Christians to this day, who suffer the pangs and the tortures of hell because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now in this day in Smyrna, there was a statue to the emperor Tiberius. In order to be acceptable to the Roman government, one day each year, a citizen would come forward and he would take a pinch of incense and he would put it into a fire that burned in the presence of this statue of the emperor in the temple of Tiberius. And if he did this, it showed his allegiance to the emperor. And he was allowed to exercise 
his other religion freely if he would do this. But a Christian could not do this. And these Christians would not do it either. And so they were discriminated against. They could not hold a public office. This is true in China. It's true in North Korea. It's true in North Vietnam. It's true in Soviet Russia. In the city of Moscow, there are seven million inhabitants, one Protestant church. Do you see, we are a very favored people to be able to worship as freely as we want to, to give out these Bibles, to preach on these microphones, to assemble for worship. And I wonder if we really know the extent to which God has favored us. And if we do not utilize it, and if we do not appreciate it, and if we do not practice it, God may judge us by allowing it to be taken away. Maybe these rumbles of anarchy that we see in our land today are really speaking to us if we would only listen. Well, the church, the church, by the way, is a called-out group, people who are called for a specific purpose, and that's to bear their master's name and to live under his lordship and these earliest Christians paid that tremendous price. Now, why would they be so poor? Well, suppose I am a stonemason, and I am a believer in Jesus, and I assemble Sunday by Sunday to worship him, and I labor for him in the week. And someone comes to me one day and says, we're going to erect a new temple here in Smyrna. We need stonemasons, and this is going to be a temple to Diana. Or this is going to be a temple to Bacchus. This would be a temple to Aphrodite. And we would like to give you a, a job. You may come and work for us. And I would say, but no. I can't build a temple to the goddess of sex. Or to the goddess of drunkenness. I worship my Lord Jesus Christ who commanded purity. I can't make a living that way. Now, wait a minute. We have people who belong to churches who put out this filthy pornography in the movie industry. They make a living doing it. They make a living soaking the minds of men with destructive things that will destroy their souls. There are people who do the same in gambling the people who do the same in a lot of the wild liquor industries. And I wonder sometimes if they ought not to think about the cost of being a Christian and really whether their business honors the Lord. A stonemason wouldn't build a temple to Bacchus, the goddess of wine. A stonemason who was a Christian wouldn't build one to Aphrodite. What would you do today? There was also a breakup of families that could result in this. A man who became a Christian might be summoned in by his father and told, you know better than this. Our family has always worshipped the emperor. Renounce this Christ. You cannot follow him. What would you do? You paid an enormous price. You suffered for him. And the Lord, the king, and the head of the church writes and says, I know, I know, I have experienced this. Did you ever think about Jesus who had not a place to lay his head at night? Did you ever think of the Lord Jesus working in a carpenter shop 
Did you ever think of him as having only the robe that he wore over his body? That was the sum total of his possessions that were gambled for when he was executed. So he can say from experience, I know, and if we follow him, we may sometimes taste these disciplines too. I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. I know your poverty. Paul, on one place, speaks of the Christians in Corinth as the offscurring of the earth. You know what that meant? It meant the stuff that is sweeped up and thrown out on the garbage heap. This is what Paul once spoke of as saying that they were treated with this way, in this way. And secondly, there was slander that was brought against them. This has always been a great work of the devil to slander those who follow Jesus. Did you ever uh, study anything about octopus? An octopus, when it's attacked, ejects a dark, inky, black fluid to try to deceive whatever is coming after. The devil is like an octopus. He has great tentacles that reach out to catch you and draw you to him. And when he sees that he is being attacked, he ejects inky black slander in every direction. Now this is something that we must be careful about. The word blasphemy means slander. And Jesus said that we must be very, very careful in our judgment of Christian work. Do not attribute something to the devil which is of the Lord. And be careful not to speak against the Lord's work. Be very careful. It's a deadly sin and one that we must avoid and one that we must expect to receive, be on the receiving end of this kind of attack when we are faithful to Jesus. And so these were slandered. It says here that they were slandered by those who call themselves Jews but are not Jews. That is, not true Jews in that they would accept the Messiah. These were people who joined in with the pagans in persecuting the Christians. And so the Christians received it from both directions. They got it from the pagan Romans, and they got it from the uh, reprobate Jews who came after them at that time. And the strongest words are here, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, the formal word for a synagogue in Hebrew, the formal designation was a synagogue of the Lord a gathering of the congregation of the Lord. And here it is called, rather, a gathering of the congregation of Satan for the purpose of destroying the work of Christ. Now, what does the risen Christ say to this persecuted church? He says to it, Have no fear of what you will suffer. I tell you now that the devil is going to cast some of your number into prison where your faith will be tested and your distress will last for ten days. Ten days is simply a figure of speech for a short time. But the Lord Jesus does not hide his scars when he invites people to follow him. I think this is one reason the church today receives a great backlash against it. It's because we have elected to preach to people about the emotional values of being a Christian. And we've made young people think that this is simply an elective, that God is not really necessary, that they can take him or leave him. And it's all right for people who want to be religious, but nothing is really going to happen to those of us who elect to go the other way.
But that's not the gospel and that's not the truth. The truth of the matter is that all men, until they are reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, are under the wrath of God. And if they leave this life without being reconciled to him, then they may fear the pangs of hell, because this is what Scripture plainly teaches. Last week I was reading Samuel Boswell's Life of Johnson, and I, I was very amused. Uh, when I, uh, Samuel Johnson, of course, is one of the super geniuses of all literary history and Samuel Johnson was speaking with a group of his elegant friends in uh, a tavern that they frequently went to and um, uh, one day the subject came up about a fear of death and so Samuel Johnson remarked that he was afraid to die and Sir Joshua Reynolds said sir what do you mean afraid to die and he said afraid of hell sir and uh, Sir Joshua Reynolds said, what do you mean, afraid of hell? And Samuel Johnson said, afraid that I may be damned, sir, and in torment for all eternity. Now Samuel Johnson was speaking words of sober truth, and it's not an elective. We cannot take or leave Jesus. We must accept him if we are to be saved. This is the plain teaching of Scripture, and Samuel Johnson had enough sense to recognize it, and he did know Jesus Christ as his Savior and his Lord. Now then, be faithful in the face of death. Christians are going to go through difficulties and troubles, and they are to be faithful in the face of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Smyrna also had a gigantic stadium there where tremendous athletic contests took place. The athletes would train and train in order to receive a crown that would be made out of laurel leaves, such as we have here. And a laurel leaf crown would be placed on the athlete's brow when he came in. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in dictating this message to the church in Smyrna says, Be faithful in the face of death and I will give you a crown of life. This has always been the way with Jesus that if I am willing to die to self, I will live forever with him. But if I elect to selfishly, he gives us those tremendous words. Let every listener hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The victorious cannot suffer the slightest hurt from the second death. This is the true church. The church, uh, the word for church in the New Testament is the called out of God. It never means a denomination. Never. In fact, as nearly as I can tell in the New Testament, it doesn't even mean a collection of churches or a group of churches. The church of God, the church of God is a society of the redeemed who are called out on Tuesday. Some of us will go to the polls to cast our votes, and we should. And they will look to see if we are registered, and then we'll be given a ballot, and we can go and exercise that privilege. Well, this is really sort of where the word church came from. A group of the Lord's people with responsibilities called out these elect of God. And they have a serious obligation and a responsibility. It's not just a club or a social organization. And to those who are victors, he will give the crown of life. You know, this book of the Revelation is full also not only of great threats regarding hell, but of beautiful promises regarding heaven. And there is a verse that used to intrigue me. 
It says that his mark shall be in their foreheads, that is, the saved. I want to close with a story that I took from Frederick W. Borum, a great old preacher in Australia. He says the old minister had just returned from the church and he sank tired out into the cozy armchair by the fireside. And his little granddaughter Marjorie was allowed to sit up late on Sunday evening so that she might have a talk with her grandpa before she went to bed. This was the treat of the week for Marjorie and not to Marjorie alone. For the old man knew no relaxation more refreshing after an arduous labor in the pulpit than to take the wee lassie upon his knee and let her prattle to her heart's content. But this evening her tiny brow was crowded. A problem baffled her. What is it, lassie, said the old minister. I, she said, have been reading about heaven. And grandpa, there's one thing I can't make out. My Bible says that there shall be no sickness, nor sadness, nor sighing in heaven. I like that. And it says that those who are there shall never hunger or thirst anymore. And I like that. But it says, Grandpa, his name shall be in their foreheads. What does that mean? Who will write the name of Jesus on their foreheads? Why, they will write it themselves, of course, girlie. Write it themselves, Grandpa, but how? Why, Marjorie, we are every day writing the names of our masters on our foreheads. Some people make a sad mistake and serve sin, and sin stamps its seal on their faces. Some serve care, and care brands their foreheads with deep wrinkles. Health and anger and hate and love and jealousy and joy all set their mark upon the faces of those who follow after them. And those who love the Lord Jesus, Marjorie, and those who walk with him and do his will, write the name of their master in their foreheads. They cannot help it. And Marjorie looked silently and wonderingly up in her much-loved grandfather's face. She glanced at the shock of gray hair that like a crown of glory circled the old man's brow. She looked into his deep, kindly eyes, still glowing with enthusiasm, inflamed from his labor in the pulpit. She gazed tenderly upon the splendid face and the massive forehead, so expressive to her of everything that was noble and beautiful and true. And then she said softly, I think I understand now, Grandpa. And she flung her arms about his neck and kissed him and scampered off to bed. And so Jesus said, the victorious cannot suffer the slightest hurt from the second death. I will give to them a crown of life. Let us stand in prayer. O God, our Father, we thank thee for the promise of our Lord Jesus who told us happy are we when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We thank thee that he told us to suffer with those who suffer, to weep with those who weep, to be bound with those who are bound in prison. 
And so we, a part of the great family of thine throughout the corners of this earth, on this special day in which we have thought of suffering, think of our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus who suffer for him now. And we ask thee to cause us day by day to remember them in our prayers and to be faithful to the opportunities that we have to allow your mark to be in our foreheads and to look forward to receiving the crown of life which will not pass away. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all. Oh,